In 1 Samuel 18, we have Jonathan and David's covenant. David increasing, Saul decreasing, and providence overruling Saul's murderous machinations for the good of his servant, David. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, preserved for us and a blessing to us. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my eldest daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him. But let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, 
that she was given unto Adriel, the Maholothite, to wife. And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spake those words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. And David, or excuse me, and Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass, after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, 1 Samuel 18. Verses 1 through 4, we have Jonathan and David's friendship and their covenant. Notice here, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This, by the way, is what true pious love looks like. It seeks the good of those who are beloved by us, even as we would naturally seek our own self-interest. Matthew Henry puts it this way, David was anointed to the crown to take it out of the hands of Saul and over Jonathan's head. And yet, though Jonathan knows this, what is his posture toward David? Does he say, well, I need to grasp that crown from my father. You can't have it, David. No, just the opposite. Genuine friendship and love is to seek the welfare and good of those we love, even over our own welfare. Genuine friendship and love seeks the welfare of our beloved over our own welfare. Thou shalt love thy neighbor how? As thyself, not as number two, but as number one. This is a rebuke to any mercenary friendship. You ever heard of people who use other people? We call them users. I'll be your friend as long as you give me what I want. Stop giving me what I want. 
you're not my friend anymore. Stab you in the back, blacken your name, murder you, who knows? If we keep friends as long as they promote our own notions and goals and then we dump them when they don't serve our purposes anymore, who are we really serving and loving? Well, it's just self-love, isn't it? Self-deification, serving yourself as a god. Let us learn to love our friends and to seek their welfare as Jonathan loved David and sought his welfare. Let us seek the glory of Christ Jesus. This is really part of the story here. Benjamin will not rule. Judah will. Jonathan knows this. Benjamin is a ravening wolf. Judah is a lion's whelp. He knows that. He knows that the crown must go to the tribe of Judah. And who's been anointed to that end? David. So Jonathan steps aside. As John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must what? Decrease. I must go down. It says that Saul took David that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. We saw this in chapter 17, verse 15. He let him go home at once. He took him at the first, sent him back to his father's house. Then David came to the slaughter of Goliath, and now he keeps him for good. That's what this is talking about. He's not sending him back a second time. Jonathan then makes a covenant with David, and we'll consider this in more detail, this word berith, as we looked at it from Genesis 15. You'll recall that it can mean both a proper covenant where parties come together, multiple parties, or it can be an improper covenant or a testament where God alone swears. He alone makes the oath. He sets all the terms, and then he gives that covenant to Abraham. But this is a proper covenant, two parties, you'll notice. Jonathan and David made a covenant, not just Jonathan, not just David, but the two parties, multiple parties coming together. That's what a covenant is. Jonathan, verse 4 tells us, stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. Do you know what sort of robe that would have been? Who's next in line to be king? The prince. What sort of clothing does he wear? An ordinary suit of apparel? No. He wears the coat of the crown prince with the sword of the next in line, with the bow of the king's son, with the girdle of royalty. What's he doing? David, these are yours. You must increase. I must decrease. He gives his garments, his sword, his bow, even to his girdle. The royal garb and the royal armory transferred to the king who will reign, David himself. Verses 5 through 16, we have David increasing and Saul decreasing. Notice that David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and he behaved himself wisely. Now, this word uh, wisely or behaving himself wisely means to be circumspect. You look around and you realize what's going on so that you don't get caught off guard, either by Saul or by the Philistines, or by some ambitious upstart under your authority. He was circumspect. He was prudent. He obeyed without being, we might say, simple. And he was wise as a serpent, but innocent and harmless as a dove to Saul himself. He wasn't insubordinate just because he was great. He obeyed orders, but he was also shrewd and wise. 
This is a good example for us all. Notice that Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants, verse 5 tells us. His superiority, that is David's, did not go to his head. He drew his subordinates to loyalty and obedience by means of his virtue. He didn't necessarily have to loudly insist on his authority. We see him as a still a very humble man. But everyone accepted his authority. The servants of Saul, the people at large, everyone loved him. Virtue in superiors tends to beget virtue in inferiors. It's not an absolute infallible rule, but it is a general rule. David was virtuous, he was obedient, he was respectful, he was wise, he was circumspect. So what about his subordinates? Well, they accepted him as their authority. They recognized that he had the virtues of a superior. Let us then who are in authority be wise. Let us walk in the fear of God and love for our neighbor. And let us pray that God would bless our example to draw our inferiors to submission to us sweetly by his power and grace. And notice verse 6, there's more of David. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. Imagine the flutterating in Saul's little heart. Oh, isn't this great? They've come out to meet me. Now let's hear what they say. Saul, how many did he slay? Um, thousands. Isn't that good? One man to slay a thousand or thousands of men? Isn't that great? Isn't that high praise? But not good enough. David, his ten thousands. This was apparently played all the time till the Philistines knew this song. We'll read about this in chapter 21, verse 11, and chapter 29, verse 5. The Philistines knew this is David of whom the women sing. Isn't he the king over Israel? That's what they say. I note then that this national anthem gave glory to men. It gave praise and victory to Saul and to his number one soldier, David. Where's God in their song? You see him there? I don't see him there. I see Saul. I see David. I see boasting and hoping in men, which generally produces contention. When men exalt themselves or are exalted by others, David may have no fault in this, but you'll notice Saul's wickedness comes out. It's drawn out by his envy. Saul was very wroth, verse 8 tells us, and the saying displeased him. Why am I not number one, in other words? Do you remember the star Wormwood? What happened to him when he was high exalted in the heaven? Shining the light of God? What does he do? He comes down to the earth, right? That's what Saul is. A shining light exalted in the kingdom of Israel, now fallen down to the earth, just as Wormwood was. In fact, it would be an interesting study to see the parallels between Saul and the Antichrist. A man who exalts himself with a show of humility, but when it all comes out, he envies the true Messiah, which is David. Envy is rottenness 
to the bones. It overthrew the prince and chief of the holy angels. Envy has ruined kingdoms, destroyed families, ended friendships, crucified the Son of God. Do you remember that? Pilate knew. Well, you just envy this guy. You want what he has and you don't have it. Envy is a slippery path to everlasting ruin. You know what Saul should have done? Praise God for David. I have a subordinate who kills ten times as many as I do. Isn't that wonderful? Praise you, Lord, for giving me such a faithful servant. Is that what he did? You know what envy makes us blind to? Our own benefit. The good God has done for us. And also we can't even bless God for the good he does in others. Let us learn to rejoice in the good name, the credit, and the success of others. You know, this is the gospel of Marxism, right? The gospel of hell. The gospel of envy. Oh, look at those rich people. So unfair. They must have gotten it by evil means. Well, that's possible, I suppose. But does it mean that all rich people got that? By some kind of wicked scheming? That's what Satan wants you to think. So that you can take away their superiority, which is their wealth. Or what about looks? Girls, look at that girl. If I only looked like her. Well, why do you want that? What has God given you? Do you not have something that God gave you? Why would you want what someone else has? Little kids, toys. Oh, I needs that. Give me your toy. That's what little kids do, right? Steal toys. Why? Envy. And then they cry because their bones are rotted by envy. Oh, I can't have that stolen thing. You mean you took back what's rightfully yours? Wham! Envy. Let us learn to rejoice in the good that God does in others, the gifts he gives them, their deserved credit, their success. Though it means that we might be humbled, that we might go down, that we might decrease. You see the difference between Jonathan and Saul? Jonathan rejoices in the exaltation of David. Saul has rottenness in his bones. What? Can he have more but the kingdom, Saul asks. My kingdom. That's how he thinks of it. Not thy kingdom, Lord. Thy kingdom come. My kingdom. Mine. And so what does Saul do? But I, David, from that day forward. Now he's not casting an eye of approval. He's not casting an eye of admiration or desire. No, this is literally to Furrow your brow and look at the man with hate and disdain. Hupablepamanos is the Septuagint. It means you look under when you flap down these brows here. Mm, mad. Furrow the brow, stare with suspicion and malice. Our catechism asks about the duties required in the ninth commandment. It says this, among other things, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring and rejoicing in their good name. Is that what Saul does? Does he rejoice in the good name of David? Sorrowing for and covering their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces. You know what we tend to do? Yeah, but he's not that great. You see, let me blacken 
this good thing you say about this person. Let me find some fault so that I can feel like I'm not that bad. Defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them. Now we're going to see Saul again and again and again. He doesn't just receive evil reports about David. Do you know what he does? He makes them up. He manufactures evil reports about David himself. Let us learn to look upon our neighbor with a charitable eye. Let us learn to rejoice in their good name. Acknowledge the gifts God has given them, whether those are material or physical, with the body or with the spirit, in their wealth, in their assets, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Has God given them some good thing? Rejoice. Be glad. Thank God. Let us acknowledge their gifts and graces. Let us be ready to receive a good report. Let us be very unwilling to receive an evil report. This is how gossip spreads so easily. People receive it as dainty morsels. Oh, tell me more. Can I find out more bad stuff about this person? This is great. Let's hear it. Come on. How hard is it to say, no, I don't want to hear that. Go talk to them about it. Can we do that? Go talk to them about it. I don't need to hear this. Why aren't you talking to them? I'm going to call them in a week and I'm going to ask them, hey, you know, so-and-so talked to me about you. Have they talked to you yet? Just tell them that. I'll, I'll call them in a week. You know, let's work this out. No, that's not what Saul does. Let us not be like him. And notice, because of his envy, what happens? Verse 10 tells us, the evil spirit from God came upon him. You think that was just God arbitrarily sending this against him? No, it's a punishment for his sin. His evil eye caused him to have an evil spirit. That furrowing of the brow caused Satan to have power over him. The devil loves envy. He preaches the gospel of envy. He wants you to think of yourself as what? A victim. Poor me. Look at those people over there. They don't deserve that. Saul is no victim. He is rather the architect of his own ruin. His melancholy comes upon him because of his envy. If he didn't have the rottenness in his bones, you think he'd be afflicted by this evil spirit? Paul had an evil spirit afflict him. Did it overcome him? Why not? What's the difference? The difference is Paul was not ruled by envy and demonic lust, and Saul was. Saul's envy and jealousy and discontent revived his melancholic distemper, which the devil, according to his want, struck in with, Matthew Poole says. The devil's just waiting for us to be envious so that he can come along and infuse into our minds those thoughts that we're just waiting to hear. Beloved, let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Envy. Envy at the success of others invites Satan. Please drag me to hell. Please take me to perdition. Can I purchase a one-way ticket to hell? It's called envy. Let us wish well to our neighbor rather than envy his prosperity. He prophesied, it tells us in verse 10. Not by the Spirit of God. Remember when he had the Spirit of God? 
And he went on and prophesied. You remember this? Is Saul also among the prophets? Is he prophesying by the Spirit of God? He's not. Junius comments, Saul was ravished as a man beside himself. His speech for manner, though not for the matter, was strange, and his behavior outwardly was such as when the prophets were stirred by the Spirit of God. But do you think he was preaching God's word? No. David had to play with his hand, as at other times... In verse 11, Saul casts his javelin, that's his return, thanks. Thank you for playing for me and easing my demonic spirit. Let me kill you now. Murderous intent. Saul is a wicked and deranged lunatic, driven by jealousy and lawless desire. David has to avoid him two times in this case. Now, much credit to David. Would I go back if somebody just threw a javelin at me? Probably not. David is a man committed to his duty. Saul is afraid of David. Why? Because he was wicked. He was lawless. He was murderous, disrespectful, disobedient. No. You know why he was afraid? God's with that man. He's left me. And he is resting on that man. I'm afraid of him. Jealousy gives way to murderous rage, which gives way to irrational fear. Let us beware of the power of our evil thoughts. They will consume and destroy us. They will leave us the shell of our former self. What is Saul now? The great and mighty man, the humble Servant who goes after his father's asses and then goes back after he's anointed king, he goes back and serves his dad watching the sheep. Is this the Saul that we're reading about? No. A shell of his former self. How? Envy. He's afraid irrationally of David. He has nothing to fear from David. This is completely and totally irrational. So what does he do? I know how I'll get rid of him. I'll promote him. I'll make him a captain over a thousand. Then maybe he'll just go away. What Saul means for evil, what does God do? Turns it to good. He turns it to good. David is now ruling over thousands in the army. He made him a captain. The intensifying wisdom of David his promotion, and the intensifying irrational fear of Saul, his malice and murderous intent goes on in verses 14 through 16, then 17 through 30. Saul's murderous machinations are foiled by the kindness of God and his providence. He tells David in verse 17 that he's going to give him his daughter, his eldest daughter, Merab. He won't do that, but he says he will. Be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Oh, how godly a king is that. Go out and fight on God's behalf. And I, in my magnanimity and love for thee, O oh David, I'll give you my daughter to wife. You see, he doesn't mean either of those. He doesn't think of God as the ruler over his kingdom. He doesn't think of David as a man worthy of his respect. 
Saul said this to himself. The Spirit of God can actually tell us what people thought. Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines. Pleasant words, weren't they? I'll give you her to wife. Be valiant for me. Fight the Lord's battles, but I want to kill you. You see, beware of men, our Lord tells us. Beware of fair words, especially praise, undue praise, adulation, flattery. Oh, how great you are. Oh, how I wish you well. I've got a plan for you to prosper. You're so wonderful, David. Go fight God's battles. Stabs him in the back. Tries to, at least. David sees himself as low. Who am I? What is my life? Or my father's family in Israel. We're nothing. We're we're the lowest. Why would I be married to the king's daughter? Why would I be his son-in-law? David will maintain this attitude about himself. He says much the same thing, 2 Samuel 7, 18. King David went in, he sat before the Lord, and you know what he said? The same thing. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? I'm nothing. I don't deserve any of your goodness, any of your kindness. I'm not a high man, I'm a low. And notice verse 19, Saul's machinations. She was given unto Adriel, the Maholathite, to wife. The offer was a fraud. Saul meant no good to David. Now, Adriel was the son of Barzillai, a friend of David's, we'll see later. My call, David's wife, would bring up Adriel's five sons. She didn't have any of her own. She adopted, apparently, her older sister's children, five of them. We see this in 2 Samuel 21, verse 8. In fact, Those five sons will be hung up before the Lord as an atonement for the violence of Saul against the men of Gibeah. Verse 20 tells us that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. Now he thinks, this is going to work. Now I can get David. He's got another girl lined up, the second one. Maybe she'll cause him to die in battle. That she may be a snare to him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Can you imagine a dad? Well, yes, I'll give you my daughter so I can kill you. That sound pretty good? Murder by marriage? Sound great, doesn't it? Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in in the one of the twain. Yeah, I didn't give you the first one, but I'll give you the second one. It'll work out. His servants come and lie and flatter. The king hath delight in thee and all his servants love thee. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. Did the servants love David? Yeah. Did the king delight in him? No. You see, this is what flatterers do. Tell you something that's true with a mixture of lies so they can trap you. That's what they're doing, trying to trap him. Saul hatches another murderous plan to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines, murder again by marriage. Verses 23 through 25 Then when David hears, he can actually pay the dowry, a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, then he's pleased. Now apparently this day where Saul said in verse 21, today thou shalt be my son-in-law was a period of days, referred to as one day. Saul then, overcome by the events in God's providence, after the tale of 200 men are brought before him, he has to give in. 
he finally gives my call to be the wife of David. Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that my call, Saul's daughter, loved him. Wicked men may occasionally be overwhelmed by God's decree and providence and they realize, why am I fighting this? Okay, I'll just give in at this point. Let us learn to submit to God's providence cheerfully, to do it with a willing heart, not to have it forced from us to do the right thing as Saul. And then notice there in verse 29, Saul was yet the more afraid of David and he became David's enemy continually. And his violence, we'll see in the next chapter, God willing, breaks open into hostility where he commands his servants, murder him, kill him. No longer murder by marriage, as we'll consider God willing this evening. Thus far, the exposition of 1 Samuel 18.